Dear Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to read your words this, this morning and learn more about you. We thank you that we live in a place where we can study your word and we have the freedom to do that. Prepare our hearts and open our minds to the truth of your word. I pray for clarity as I read the word and open the scriptures this morning. May it bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The scripture reading today is on page four of your bulletin. It's from 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you have heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Please be seated. My grandfather was orphaned at a young age, so he grew up not really knowing a lot about his heritage and his family tree. So as he was getting older, he started to research his family tree and my grandmother's family tree. And a few years ago, I took that research, I sat down at the computer for a couple hours and was able to continue that and trace my family tree back about a thousand years. I found 13th and 14th century knights and dukes a mayor of Cambridge and a sheriff of London. And while all of this is, is fascinated, it was an interesting couple hours, the really important thing coming out of this is there's two ministers in my family tree that I would like to bring up this morning. The first is John Cotton. John Cotton was a Puritan minister. He was an author. Um, he lived from 1584 to 1652. And he came to America to escape the persecution of Puritans in England. And you might know his grandson a little bit better, Cotton Mather. And so he's one person that's in my family tree. And the other side is my grandmother, much lesser known minister. She wasn't an author. She struggled through seminary in the late 60s as the PCA or PCUSA and PCUS began negotiations. She graduated from McCormick Theological Seminary in 1971 and became a PCA minister shortly thereafter. And both of these ministers, they influenced uh, my life greatly. And while I don't agree with everything that John Cotton taught, he was a Puritan minister who, whose teachings, under his teachings, a lot of people repented and knew who Jesus Christ is. He was a man with a really high view of scripture as the infallible word of God. And then we go over to my grandmother. And my grandmother and I disagreed a lot on theology. And it's not my intention to dishonor her, but to speak honestly for her theology and her beliefs. When she was alive, we had many discussions around theology and what the Bible meant. But she believed that there are many ways to be saved. For Christians, it would be through Jesus Christ, but it could be for Muslims through Allah, through Buddha, meditation, or even living a good life. She believed in contradictions in a fallible Bible. She believed that the Bible most likely contained errors and that people could cross out parts of it that they didn't, that they didn't like and that they wouldn't be held accountable for those, for those areas. Now, our discussions would often revolve around a specific passage or specific understanding. And I failed to realize at the time 
what I now know more clearly is it was her low view of Scripture. It wasn't that Scripture was, was important. It wasn't that Scripture was perfect and fallible. And so when we look at the Westminster Confession, what do we see is the first section of Holy Scripture. The church here, the PCA, they hold Scripture, they have the high view of Scripture. They hold it as very important. And this morning, we'll focus on that, the accreditation, the accepting, and the applying of Scripture. So what do you think of when you think of accrediting? For some people, it might be a business process that's accredited. For others, it's a college or seminary that's accredited. And, and there, it's somebody assigning credit. But really, to accredit means to regard as true or to believe. In the 1500s, they took the word ad, which means to, and credere, which means credit, put it together, and it's to believe. So when we accredit something, it's not that we're assigning credit or making it true, it's that we're believing what is already true. So going back to 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul was thanking God that when the Thessalonians received the word of God, they received it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. It is this receiving of the entire scriptures that we're doing when we accredit or believe the scriptures to be true. And I just want to go back to that a second and, and, accredit, uh, you know, and say it again. It does not mean that we give something credibility. It means that we believe something that's already true. And as Christians, we believe that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God. And many of you probably understand what inspired and inerrant mean. But I'm going I'm, I'm to talk about that for a minute for those that, that may not, for my children, for example, that may need a, a, a little more reminder and understanding. So inerrancy of scripture means that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. It means that the Bible is true concerning everything that it talks about. But does the Bible talk about everything? Well, my family and I, we raise chickens. And so we have lots of chickens and lots of eggs. And so does the Bible tell me how to raise chickens? Does it tell me what size coop I need? Does it tell me whether, how to keep them warm in the, warm, in the cold spell we just had last week? Or what to do when they get sick? Or should I buy the cheap feed, the non-GMO feed? Or should I splurge for the organic feed? The Bible doesn't specifically instruct me in any of those things. But the Bible does instruct me that when I sell my eggs, I should not cheat my customers. You know, if I go through Leviticus 19, verses 35 and 36, God teaches us to have just weights and balances right before reminding us that he is the Lord our God. And when I speak of weights and balances, when you sell eggs, you have small, medium, large, extra large, and jumbo, and all of those are based on specific weights. So Proverbs 20, 23 teaches us that unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord. Amos and Hosea, they remind the people that God sees them when they cheat with dishonest scales and sees the merchants in who has false balances. Ezekiel, God commands the people to have just balances. So as we see in, by this example, every word of scripture is true, but not everything is in the Bible. So inspiration 
then that's the infallibility that everything is true inspiration is that these words are breathed out by God that these are words that are God's words and some of them are spoken out by prophets for example in 1 Samuel 15 the first two verses tell us that Samuel said to Saul the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel now therefore listen to the words of the Lord thus says the Lord of hosts and Samuel goes on and tells Saul about the message that the Lord has given him to tell Saul and that's one of many places where it's we have recordings of direct words of God but we see also examples in the Old Testament where we have prophecies that are fulfilled in the New Testament for example if you were here last Sunday on Christmas, we read Matthew 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet. And um, Matthew there was, was speaking about the prophet Isaiah, or the words of prophet, the prophet Isaiah. And so we also read Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and he will call his name Emmanuel. And so these Old Testament words were fulfilled in the New Testament. But what about the words the prophets didn't speak? Are they still the words of God? For this, we turn to 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, which reads, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. As we look here, we see in verse 16, it uses the, the word scripture. The Greek word for that is graphe, which refers to sacred writings. So in here, the sacred writings that it's referring to is the Old Testament scriptures that Timothy would have had. If we had read the previous verse, it specifically says the, the, the uh, writings that he was acquainted with since childhood since he was born in 17 AD, that would have been the Old Testament scriptures. But the New Testament books are also scripture, according to Peter and Paul. And so they would also be included in the 2 Timothy 3 passage. We see this, for example, in 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16, where we read, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Did you catch that? When Peter was writing about Paul's writings, he referred to them as scripture. When he said, as ignorant and unstable people twist Paul's writings as they do the other scriptures. So he's lumping in the other scriptures with the writings of Paul. And the same word here used for scriptures is the exact same graphe that was in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, which was all scripture is breathed out by God. Or we can look at Paul's writings. In 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, Paul writes, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. 
So Paul is putting two passages together. And here again, he uses the same word for scripture, the graphe. And the first phrase, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, is an Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy 25.4. And the second phrase, the laborer deserves his wages, is actually a New Testament passage coming from Luke. Luke 10.17 to be exact. By putting these two phrases together, Paul is claiming that Luke's writings are scripture. Out of our understanding of the inspiration and inerrancy of scripture comes the authority of scripture. So we know that, that scripture is the word of God. We know that scripture is, is infallible. But now what about the authority of scripture? So different church traditions treat, treat, treat it a little differently. You have the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox that believe both the Bible and the church are infallible. They believe that the church has to interpret the Bible and they can reinterpret it later on and it can change throughout history. Other groups believe that God is still revealing scripture, that new teachings that can contradict or abrogate scripture. We see this um, very clearly within the Mormons or the Muslims who teach that their respective books are additional revelations from God. What we in the PCA and other Reformed denominations believe is, is something called sola scriptura. What it means is that scripture is the final and only infallible authority for Christians in all matters of faith and practice. While we believe that there's great value in creeds, confessions, and catechisms, these creeds, confessions, and catechisms must be tested against scripture. And if there's a conflict, scripture always wins. The Westminster Chapter 1, section 4 states the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received. Why? Because it is the word of God. So it's important to remember our giving Scripture and accrediting it, or receiving scripture and accrediting it, does not make it the word of God. To accredit scripture is receiving them because they are already the word of God. The scripture is the word of God, whether or not we believe that it is. And once we accredit scripture, or believe it as the entire word of scripture, then we need to accept each word or each passage in scripture. So going back to 1 Thessalonians, we see that the Thessalonians accepted scripture as the word of God. Let's go back to a few examples of how we would accept scripture. According to Wikipedia, the earth was created 4.54 billion years ago when life appeared about 4 billion years ago and man-life creatures about 2 billion years ago. Or you could go to the National Geographic's magazine. And when I was a child, that's the magazine we had, and we kind of looked through that. Had great pictures from all over the world. But on their website, where they're teaching to third through twelfth graders, they write, billions of years ago, the Earth, along with the rest of our solar system, was entirely recognizable, existing only as an enormous cloud of gas. Eventually, a mysterious occurrence, one that not even the world's foremost scientists have yet been able to determine. Then it goes on and talks about how dust then created everything. But did you catch that phrase in there that the world scientists haven't been able to figure it out, 
but this is what you have to believe. Yet all those things contradict with Scripture. And these are only two of the many examples that are out there. The question each believer must, must answer is, am I going to believe everything out there, or am I going to believe the Word of God? Am I going to believe the Scriptures? Some people will try to kind of merge some theories together, look at theistic evolution, and say, you know, that, that evolution must be right because that's what some of the scientists believe, and, and God directed it, therefore you kind of put the two together. But that's a false narrative that misrepresents and misinterprets Scripture. Rather, the biblical view, and we see the New Testament's writers believing the, the biblical view. We see, for example, 2 Peter 3, 4, Romans 1, 20, and Mark 10, 6, where all draw the reader back to the creation, to the beginning of creation, where God created the heavens and the earth. So it comes back to this, the Bible's true. Even the New Testament believed that the Old Testament scriptures were true. And Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God created the world. And the New Testament writers believed that Moses wrote the Bible. God's word is true. But why should we be concerned about something that happened thousands of years ago? Why does it matter if Adam and Eve were, were real people or not? Why does it matter if God created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh day? What is, what is important about that? It matters because if Genesis falls apart, the entire Bible falls apart. If Genesis can't be trusted, then the entire Bible can't be trusted. Or if God didn't create the heavens and the earth, then who did? And is that being more powerful than God? If Adam and Eve weren't the first humans and they evolved from some animals, then our belief of an eternal soul or original sin, they all fall apart. If the fall didn't happen, how then can we be saved? I could go on. But the point is that if Genesis didn't happen, our entire worldview falls apart. What may seem unimportant is fundamental to the rest of God's word. We must accept each passage of the Bible as God's word. In today's culture, love is a feeling. It's a feeling that you have and marriages will last as long as that feeling continues. When you're no longer happy, it's time for the marriage to end so that each person can find somebody to make them, him or her happy again. Today's media teaches it doesn't matter who you love as long as you're happy. They claim that you can love someone who's already married to someone else, or you can love someone of the same gender. Age doesn't matter anymore as long as you're happy. They don't believe that there's a need to get married if you can live with your boyfriend or girlfriend and do everything that a married couple does. But what does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that from the beginning, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. There are only two genders, male and female, and that's Mark 10, 6. Romans 1, 24 through 27 teaches that marriage is between one man and one woman, and it's because of sin 
A sin something people don't want to talk about today. But it's because of sin that the people abandoned God's plan and engaged in same-sex relationships. Because it's not how God created it. God created males and females to have a relationship with each other. And anything beyond that is a sin against God. Leviticus calls homosexuality an abomination. Jude teaches us that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for their sexual morality and homosexuality. God does not only speak of the homosexual relationships. In Exodus 20, 14, he, he forbids adultery. Jesus then, in, in Matthew 5, 27, 28, takes that and says, adultery, if you look at a woman lustfully, that's included in adultery. And so he expands that definition, or not expands, but clarifies the definition. This, <clears throat> this does not mean that divorce is never permitted in a church. But all too often, divorce is, she stopped making me happy, or I need my freedom, or I don't love her anymore. Those excuses do not please God or follow what he teaches in the Bible. For those who have been divorced and for those who have been remarried for reasons that were not biblical, there is forgiveness at the cross. This is not meant to condemn you for things that have been done in the past. Our God is a gracious God. He's a merciful Father. All sins can be forgiven if we ask God for forgiveness. As Christians, we must not only accredit the entire scripture, but, but we must accept each individual passage as, of the scripture as God's words to us. We must do this even if those very beliefs will cause conflict in the world in which we live. We must do that when those very beliefs will cause conflict within our individual lives. Some of the truths of scripture are difficult for us, None of us could accept these truths of Scripture as the Word of God without the Holy Spirit working in our lives. It is through this Holy Spirit that we believe that, that this is God's Word. It is through the Holy Spirit that we're able to apply these Scriptures to our lives. Now, the Bible is not a quick-fix book, meaning all of our problems won't go away with a few words of Scripture. However, the Holy Spirit does strengthen us so that we may endure what comes our way. And as we go back to the text here, we're studying together, this, the text we're studying this morning, we read how the Thessalonians received and accepted the word of God, which is at work in, in their lives. Paul remind, is reminding the Thessalonians that the Holy Spirit is at work in their lives, and the, the Thessalonians he's writing to are believers. So it's very specifically talking to believers that the Holy Spirit is, is at work in their lives, through the word of God. And this is the application of scripture in their lives. At times in our lives, we may feel that life is out of control. In these times, we can turn to Genesis 1 and 2 and know that God created all things. We can read Colossians 1.17 and know that before all, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And because God created all things, and holds all things together, we can trust him with our problems. These problems that seem so big for us, but for God who creates and sustains all things, they're not too big for him. Or at other times, we may feel sad or depressed. At these times, we can begin applying the, the beginning of Genesis, that God created all things, 
which means God created you. And moving through the New Testament, we can remember that because the Father sent the Son to die on the cross so that I may have life, I know that God loves me and cares for me. And then we can look at verses like John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. And John 13, 34, which includes the phrase, Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. So we can look at that and understand how much God loves us. Or a newly married couple struggling to adjust a married life can start with Genesis 2.24. Moses writes about, about God's words about man leaving a father and mother and, and holding fast to his wife. A husband and wife shall become one flesh. That same couple can then look to Ephesians 5 where, where Paul writes about wives respecting and submitting to their husbands and Husbands loving their wives as, as Christ loved the church? Or a student, a student that didn't have time to, to study for the exam or doesn't understand all the material may think about cheating to get a better grade, which is a form of lying or stealing. And they can look at Deuteronomy 20 or Leviticus 19 about the Ten Commandments where it talks about thou shalt not steal and, and thou shalt not lie. Proverbs 20, uh, 12, 22, lying lips are abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 10, 9, whoever walks in integrity walks securely. And so we, we can walk through that. We can walk through the New Testament where we see in Corinthians that we, that we are God's temple and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. So we shouldn't be doing things that, that, that are against God's law. And we might be a couple, you know, that, that's, Considering divorce for irreconcilable differences. And then what verses we look at beyond Genesis and Ephesians? We can look at 1 Corinthians 7, where wives should not separate from their husbands, and husbands should not divorce their wives, but they do remain unmarried. Or we can look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on, insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Am I really practicing each of these acts of love? Am I patient? Am I kind? Do I envy or boast? Am I arrogant or rude? Do I insist upon my own way? Am I irritable or resentful? Do I rejoice in the truth or do I skirt the truth and lie? Chances are good that I have areas where I am not showing love to my wife. These truths from scripture may be hard to apply, but there are truths that every, these are truths that every Christian must apply to his or her life. Life is not easy, and applying scripture can be difficult. And I wish I could stand up here and tell you that I perfectly apply scripture, but my wife and children would, would, they would know the truth and be able to tell you. I don't always apply scripture as I could. There's times where I've needed to ask God and others for forgiveness when I've failed to apply the word of God. Too often we want to disregard God's word because living by 
by God's word isn't popular in the world today. Let me give you an example of a married couple. We'll call him Bob. And I've got permission to share this story. But Bob was married twice. The first time Bob got married, the marriage lasted about two years. It was a difficult marriage for Bob. He and his wife didn't see eye to eye. Although Bob and his wife were both Christians and went to church, they didn't have the same view of the Bible. Bob had a view that it was an inerrant, infallible word of God. And he had accredited it as the word of God, accepted it as true, and, and he tried to apply it to his life. He didn't apply it perfectly all the time, but he tried to obey God and apply scripture in his life. Now Bob's wife viewed, the, viewed the Bible as a Christian book with good teaching. Because of her view, Bob's wife filed for divorce because she wasn't happy, didn't feel fulfilled in the marriage, and didn't want to work at it. And a few years later, Bob met his second wife. She also believed that the Bible's the inerrant word of God and applied it to her. And Bob, he tried to make that second marriage work better. But Bob is, he's still the same Bob. Their first few years of marriage were rocky. Both Bob and his wife, though, they, though they both made mistakes, they applied the word of God to their life. They refused to get a divorce. They refused to take an easy way out. Each one grew in their relationship with God and with each other. Many years later, they still don't have a perfect marriage, but they are continuing to apply God's word and are working through the hard times and with the joy God gives them as they follow him. And we can all learn from Bob's example. Now each of us, we have different struggles. Some may struggle with lust. Some may struggle with idolatry. Some with, with greed. Others may be struggling with emotional or physical scars resulting from abuse. Again, I'm not suggesting that somebody who just opens up their Bible, will, everything will be perfect and, and, and everything will work out. The pain is real, but that's not the end of a Christian story. Just like the church, the Thessalonian church, as we accredit, apply, and accept God's word, the Holy Spirit will be at work within us. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for bringing us here to worship you this morning. May your word guide us as we apply it to our lives. May the Holy Spirit work in us as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen.